Hi, this is Joe Kwan, the Connection Counselor, and thank you for listening to Executive Presence Morsels. Today's bonus episode is brought to you by our sponsors. The truth is, it's not easy coming up with content for a daily podcast like Executive Presence Morsels. One way I keep things fresh is by constantly learning from others. An easy and convenient way to do this is through audiobooks, and the Rolls-Royce of audiobooks is Audible. Today, our listeners can try a free 30-day trial of Audible Premium Plus, which gives you credits for up to two premium titles of your choosing, access to the Audible Plus catalog of podcasts, audiobooks, guided wellness, and Audible Originals. It's a buffet and no credits needed. And a friendly email reminder before your trial ends. Go to www.connectioncounselor.com slash bookme to sign up. And while you're there, check out my latest book reviews. Thank you for supporting our show. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Welcome to the Executive Presence Morsels collab series where together we find out how different disciplines and executive presence go together. I'm Joe Kwan, your host, and today we are very excited to have with us Nick Johnson, number one international best-selling author, award-winning speaker, and a keynote speaker on the very relevant and timely topic of leadership and mental wellness. Nick, how are you doing this very early morning for you? I'm doing great, Joe. I'm in Singapore, and it's great to be connected with you. Thank you for having me. Great, great. So um, I think the adjustment for people has been so different as we've, um, for those of us who have the opportunity to work from home and, and you know, understanding that that's not uh, available to everyone, but for those who have, um, it's, a, it's a strange new world where maybe people who didn't want to work from home now are forced to, and other people who always wanted to work from home are now getting all, you know, all they can eat working from home. Talk to us a little bit about um, what you've seen in terms of this shift from sort of pre-COVID to where we are today. Well, Joe, indeed, what we have seen in the last two years, and I can, I'm speaking with leaders mainly in Southeast Asia, Asia, but also, of course, I'm, I'm staying in touch with people in other countries. But what we have seen is that people basically are acting in a very different way. So I think what COVID has done has really put people in two camps. People have quite strong opinions. I prefer to work from home. I want to be in the office. And what we have seen there is that it's very hard uh, for us to treat everyone the same. We have to really, really understand that everyone is different and have different needs and wants. People have perhaps underlying reasons 
why they don't want to go out in a, in a gathering with a lot of people uh, for many reasons. And, 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 and uh, one thing that I also noticed is that we clearly are acting in very different ways. If you are an introvert, for example, naturally you would love to isolate yourself and working from home. But if you're an extrovert, you would love to get back into the office as soon as you can to hang out with the rest of the crowd. Yeah, what, what I find so interesting about that, and I've heard lots of people I know who, who are, uh, I'd say, let's just call them more introverted than, than extroverted, um, say exactly what you said, that this is like a, a dream for them. And I wonder, um, in your talks with executives and, and companies, um, it's very interesting to me how there's different levels of resistance to what's going on, or if I may be so bold to say what is required um, to have a safe working environment. And can you talk to us a little bit about what you've seen in terms of sort of the different perspectives of different types of companies, or maybe even leaders, right, in terms of like whether they would require their team to be in the office versus not? Yes, I mean, again, also companies are acting very differently, also based on perhaps a uh, where the head office is, if it's in the US, Europe or Asia, then again, it would have been completely different approaches. And, uh, and no matter how you want to act as a company, it also very much replies on the legislations. And uh, if you are a global company operating 150, 200 countries, every single country will have different rules and regulations here. So what I've seen working with a lot of senior executives, and especially here in Asia, we're talking regional directors who's in charge of all of Asia. Even in all of Asia, then, if you're responsible for 25 countries, again, it's all different in the countries. So it's been very, very difficult to have a policy uh, that applies for the whole world. I've seen companies coming out there saying, well, we should allow our staff flexible work time. Let's allow them to work from home three days a week and two days a week. They should come into the office. Well, that might be good in some countries, but in Singapore, for example, at the moment, um, you're not allowed to do that. In Singapore, the local regulation at the moment is that maximum 50% of your workforce can come back to the office at any time. And therefore they want the companies to create rosters for people to coming back. So that is, I think the main challenge here, Joe, that there's just so many different factors that play in here. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, you recently wrote your book on executive loneliness and I'm sure you've been writing and, and researching this topic for, for quite some time. And, and we're at this time where there is such a, um, such a greater lens on mental health and wellness, whether through whether it's through sports figures and things going on in the news like that with Simone Biles and the Olympics, or just you know just people um, that you may know at work being more open about it. So when you say executive loneliness, I think people could take that a little bit differently. Maybe can you explain a little bit um, sort of what that encapsulates uh, for you and the work you've been doing? Well, executive loneliness very much goes back to the good old saying, it's lonely at the top. And it's so true, Joe, that, you know, the higher you come up, the higher it gets, the lonelier it gets. Because if you are in middle management, then when you go on your lunch break, you will have people, you will have make friends, people at your own level where you can share your problem with. But as you climb up higher and higher, there will not be so many in your office uh, who you can talk to at that level. And also the confidentiality gets higher the higher up you go. So therefore, uh, there's very few people you can share the problem with. And that is where I started also then my research. I started at the top, I interviewed and I surveyed senior executives. But of course, 
the term executive loneliness is also a little bit broader. It means I'm basically referring to people who are inside an organization. You don't have someone to talk to because even if you are in the middle management, you might be scared that people will start gossiping about you, and you worry that if I talk to someone about this, maybe I don't get my next promotion. What will people think of me? So people are uh, walking around being a little bit worried about what they're opening up, and that is what I refer to with executive loneliness. But it's also perhaps if you have that feeling. That no one understands you, then you start to feel isolated in your workplace. And my my job over the past years then has tried to break this this the stigma here, so people should feel more open to open up more open door policies, more vulnerability, so that we are talking to each other inside of workplaces. Yeah, it's it's such a fascinating topic, and and you mentioned um, a word that that I've been thinking a lot about. Um, lately, which is vulnerability, and specifically um, how a lot of people don't really understand. Like if you ask them about it, they un- they'll say, sure, that makes sense. But they don't really, really in their heart understand how vulnerability is actually necessary for connection. If you have a suit of armor on, no one can really, really connect with you. But if you, as you go about your work life, you see more armor then you see vulnerability. So I'm curious to get your perspective, um, especially from the work that you do, um, how people navigate that, right? Because especially as you get to the higher levels, you, you and, and even at the medium levels, you can't just be vulnerable all the time and saying, you know, what you think when you think it, right? There has to be some professional, um, professional judgment. But at the same time, you can't be like a Terminator. You can't be a robot and perfect all the time with no flaws because that actually makes you more lonely. It it pushes people further away from you. So curious to get your thoughts. Well, I say that when it comes to vulnerability inside an organization, it has to start at the top. I mean, you cannot expect that your middle managers or your teams will start opening up and being vulnerable with you before you start. So it has to start at the top. So as a leader of the organization, you need to start to show some vulnerability. And and as you say, Joe, it doesn't doesn't mean that in every conversation you start being uh, vulnerable and sharing things. But there's a time and place for this. Perhaps you set a, a, a weekly all-hands meeting or a monthly all-hands meeting, and you then as a leader of organization opened up the talk and you share something about yourself. And perhaps every time you have these talks, the leaders stand up and share for one or two minutes, perhaps something that's going on at home, something with the children, something how they, perhaps when they were uh, working their way up, something that happened to them, an incident, so that once they are sharing this, the, the, the rest of the uh, the team, they start to feel, oh, that, this is how it is. And they start to feel that this is also a human person, the boss. And then the leader can share, well, by the way, on Friday afternoons, I have an open door policy and uh, feel free to drop by if there's something on your mind. And then, you know, when you have your next all hands meeting two weeks later, you can invite someone of them who, who came and uh, spoke to you in the room and they said, oh, by the way, I came and talked to to my boss and we shared about this and they can share how this really helped them so that you're sort of creating this culture uh, in the company that it's okay to not be okay. It's okay to raise your hand. It's okay to speak about the things that are on your mind. And, you know, it doesn't take long to turn this around, Joe. I, mm. I heard about companies where it happens very quickly. And you mentioned uh, uh, walking around uh, with armor and there was one um, a lady, and if I may just share this, she was uh, she's still today, she's a managing director for a big international bank here in Singapore. Mm-hmm. And for many years, 
She was just elbowing her way up in the career ladder. She wanted to go to the top, but she felt lonely. She felt isolated. She felt that she didn't have any friends in the office when people went for lunch. Her teams would avoid her. They would go for her own place. She never had that natural connection with them. And it was only when uh, during COVID when she felt very isolated, she eventually decided to open up thanks to uh, thanks to the conversations she had with me. And she decided to open up uh, to her teams about how she felt and once she'd done that, uh, the whole atmosphere changed overnight. And, and, and today they have an open door policy and they are, they've gone through this pandemic in a beautiful way by just being vulnerable. Yeah, I, that, that story resonates so much with me, Nick. And what I love about it um, and what it draws out is, in a way, we've been indoctrinated that this is the way to be, right? I mean, I'm sure that woman had certain personality traits as well, but her approach is not uncommon, right? Like she is not the deviation from the norm. That is actually the norm that you see. So in a way we've been indoctrinated or told probably by well-meaning sort of senior people and sponsors and mentors that, hey, never let them see you sweat and all these expressions that you gotta be tough, you know? Um, So talk to us a little bit about how, you know, that, that can actually damage us sometimes. Well-intended advice to, to help our career can actually damage us in terms of our ability to connect with others and, and can make us more lonely. Yes, it does, Joe. And I call it in my book, A Smiling Depression, because that's what I say that many, many of our senior executives are hiding behind. Everyone needs to have a beautiful profile. You need to look great on LinkedIn. You join <laughs> all the speaker panels. You're in the newspaper. You do yeah. all of these things to look great, you know, for your company and your organization. So you're building up this uh, beautiful facade, you know, and, and I think uh, we inflate our egos along with it. And then, you know, it, it becomes something that we look after and we are so scared that someone will look in what's going on behind the scene you know and to find out that after all we're all humans and we're we're all uh, making mistakes from time to time and and that is where the challenge is and 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 more pretty you make this facade of course the more precious are you but we cannot always deliver at the top we, we always go up and down ourselves you know and there's external factors happening especially now during covid of course where there's been many challenges perhaps at the home front maybe with families and relatives and so on uh, so that we might not been able to hold it all together the whole time and then when that breaks, that's when it's extremely, extremely challenging. And uh, I, I have to say, Joe, that I'm because of my book and the research I've done, I have, I have quite a lot of insight with senior executives. And many have uh, fallen into some bad habits uh, during the pandemic. And uh, I can just mention, for example, people who might have before uh, enjoyed, you know, a bottle of wine two, three nights a week before or uh, been able to manage in a reasonable manner. Before now, they know it. It's become a daily affair. And with home deliveries and home orders, well, uh, it's become, uh, it turned into bad habits. And that is what I heard, but also with, with gambling perhaps have become a problem and, and many other issues have come up as a result of this. So they're trying to cope with it in different ways. Yeah, what's what's interesting to me about what you just said is um, how all the trappings of success that these executives have and, and kudos to them because you know they, they've earned them and they've worked hard to get there. I feel like it can actually make you feel more lonely because you're like, why am I so lonely? I'm so successful. Everyone wants my life. But what is wrong 
with me that I have all this and I'm still lonely. And I feel like that that can create a very confusing, almost dangerous spiral and, and maybe perhaps lead to some of the, the less productive uh, behaviors that you were just mentioning. Yeah, absolutely. And the research I did for my book showed that 84% of the senior executives would not talk about it in the company. Uh, to make matters worse, 75% of them would not seek help. Uh, that means, of course, they would be scared that if they go and see someone or they talk to someone, uh, let's say a psychologist or someone about the problems, they'd be scared that someone find out or see them or show up in a medical record and then the, the HR find out and then uh, something happens. So people are just so scared that, the, that this, this comes out there that they rather suffer in isolation and not talk to anyone. And that is exactly where my work it comes in also, Joe, that I'm trying to break that stigma and that I'm saying it is okay to seek help. And, and here is also what one good transformation in the last two years is that you can now have a, a therapy session on Zoom. You don't have to go in and be seen perhaps uh, in a waiting room. Uh, uh, and so in that sense, uh, there there is more help out there and there's new ways to seek that help. And as soon as you just open that door and you speak to one person about how you feel, normally half the problem is solved. Yeah, I definitely want to hear a little bit more about um, how you can start to make that shift and and get that help. Uh, before we do, I don't want to um, gloss over the damage that this can wreak on a person's life and the lives of people around them. And by damage, I don't just mean career necessarily. I don't just mean financial. There's many different types of damage that people can suffer. And I'm just curious if you could talk a little bit about that, what you've seen, what you've researched, what you've heard from people you've worked with in terms of the the real damage it can do to people's lives. Well, I mean, uh, for a start, of course, it can lead to, to loss of job or, or, or career or issues with a relationship in the work. That, that's one thing. But the home front, it's in many times, and I touched upon it before, it can lead to bad, uh, poor addictions, uh, drugs, alcohol, uh, gambling, and all these things come into play, perhaps if people feel isolated and feel not understood and they pick up on bad habits instead, uh, which later can become addictions. But what we've also seen is that it, it's been a lot of, uh, relationship challenges perhaps if so if, if you're not feeling well and you, the whole family at one stage were forced to work from home perhaps homeschooling at the same time then uh, if the relationship are not going well and people are not feeling well it can really quickly become an issue and that's what we've seen and I've been sitting in multiple support groups Joe uh, where the couples are going into uh, divorces. We have seen senior executives, expats, then being stationed in one city, uh, mm-hmm. where the family who will, and where they are still committed to being in that city are separating into two apartments. Perhaps the wife living with the children, the the husband staying in one apartment because simply he need to focus on the work. He's not well, and the pressures is just too much. And then to have the whole family around him has not managed during these extreme circumstances we have found ourselves in. Remember also that companies have been perhaps in overdrive. Uh, then again, as we touched on earlier, with different regulations for every country changing all the time, back and forwards, and where you have to pull you know, whole teams and operations and perhaps thousands of employees affected. So it's been working around the clock and not feeling well with the family around you. Uh, there's no wonder that people are Perhaps now as we are two years or soon three years into this are feeling drained and uh, are not so well. Yeah, I mean, I, I think the work that you're doing, Nick, is, is, is so important. And, and one thing that can't be overstated, I think, is that 
the individual's ability to be well directly correlates with their success at work, at home, and whether whatever other organizations or activities that they have. It it really sets the ceiling for how well you can do. And when you're not, you know, mentally at your best performance and and as you start to you know maybe get more lonely and and perhaps you know feel even more serious you know depression sort sort of feelings it can really impact your ability to be the best version of yourself yes absolutely and that's why it's so important to do something and we touched upon the things of starting to speak up starting breaks and barriers uh, inside your workplace but it's also very important to have outside your work where you have either yeah it can be psychologists therapists you even open up if you have trust in your local doctor go next time talk to your doctor they will have the resources or there's so many wonderful support groups out there joe and um, that uh, most of them are free voluntary basis that you can talk to the support groups um, and 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 we'll get a mentor and and just speak up and then you're starting already your first step towards a, a good recovery yeah i i find it really interesting the way you describe that it's 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 not some magical thing that you need to do. It's not some expensive thing. However, it may require some, for lack of a better word, courage or discomfort for you to broach that for the first time. Um, and have you seen that that often being sort of a, a major obstacle for people to get maybe get the help or even attempt to get the help that, that would help them? Yes, it, it has been an issue, but I think COVID has made many senior executives feel really unwell, that they realize it. And what I've seen is that many of them have worked with a coach, perhaps a life coach or career coach or someone who really have started to ask them powerful, deep questions, who made them start thinking. And that then in itself have led them to going and see some specialist for whatever issue it's. If, if it has been an addiction, they've been able to see perhaps someone who can, can help them with that issue. So I think we are moving in the right direction with this, Joe. I feel that there, people are increasingly asking for help. And I am definitely a big advocate about this. And I'm cheering on people as much as I can for asking for help, because I know that it can be in some instances, even life-saving. Yeah, and, and and Nick, the the work you do and the work that you know um, other professionals do in helping this, um, sometimes the way I think about it, to use a metaphor, is you know it, it can be very difficult to see ourselves without a mirror, right? It can be very helpful to have someone else to serve as the mirror, especially if they have some special you know training or experience, you know, doing this with other people to perhaps more clearly see what's going on with us because we tend to just think that we're doing everything fine. I mean, that's just the default position, right? Like people don't normally go around thinking I'm not doing everything fine. Our supposition is like, oh, you know, I could do a little bit better, but I'm doing all right. Um, So it's interesting to me how um, just even having a small conversation with someone like that can really start to shift things for people in a positive way. Yes, definitely. And I mean, many times if you start working with a coach, they would do a check-in first to figure out where you are. And uh, what I've seen coaches are using, for example, the wheel of life, where you have the different parts of your life, 
the spiritual, the physical, and and, uh, and all the other parts of your life, financial and so on, where you look into then and rate it perhaps from a scale of one to 10, how, how are you feeling? And then you can easily pinpoint where where is it the number one, two or three, that is where we need to work on. And then you dig, dig, uh, dig deeper in there. And that's the beautiful work that coaches can do. But then that doesn't solve the problem of being around other people. I think, uh, the support groups is a wonderful way and we all know that uh, perhaps the beautiful work of uh, organizations like Alcoholics Anonymous and so on and they, there's these anonymous support groups now for basically every issue or addiction or problem in the world if you if you google it you will find it for shopping gambling overeating <laughs> there's something for everything so if you have an issue and you google that there would be a support group especially in the us there would be something very close to you and just to come into that setting and to feel that wow i'm not alone there's five ten more people who have this issue and then you sort of start to get that sympathy. There's others who are there who, who managed to come out of it and who are there to help you. And, and as we said before, Joe, there's so many people who wake up every day full of energy wanting to help. Yeah. Now, Nick, I don't want to, and I imagine you don't want to paint such a negative picture that dissuades people from trying to get to the top and be successful, right? Because, oh, you're going to have all these problems and be, you know, lonely. And I'm sure you've come across people who either through their practices or their traits are able to continue to be connected and, and have that good mental health as they continue their ascent to however high they get. Can you share with us a little bit your observations or what you've seen about people who, I don't want to say are doing it right, but perhaps are, are having better success in terms of um, fighting off what can often be uh, a tendency to get lonelier as you move up the ranks? Well, I think it's something you, you, you should start to practice as soon as you can. You don't wait until you're at the top, until you start having a coach or having a support network. I said this should be something that you start with as early as possible, no matter where you are in the career ladder. And But it seems like it's more challenging the younger you are. We tend to be perhaps more quiet. We all know anyone who has teenage uh, children know when they become teenage, they like to close the door and it's very difficult to find out anything what is going on and it seems like uh, we are bringing that with us into the workplace where we are extremely uh, shy to open up so therefore uh, I mean anyone who can start practicing this even perhaps parents play a role here where we need to be a bit vulnerable and with our children to create that sort of feeling that it's okay to speak up without being uh, punished if they're telling the truth so I think it starts already at the home front there, but inside an organization, then it's very important, as I said, that you as a boss are creating this culture of speaking up. So, And then if people do speak up and they say something that they don't get heavily punished for it, because then you will also create this culture of people being scared to speak up. So I would say it's a daily affair and it has to work in the family, at home and also in the offices. And it's for all of us to, to together create this environment. Yeah. You know, one thing that I love that's coming through in, in what you're sharing with us today, Nick, is this um, sense of connecting with people and being engaged with others. And, and that's a principle that I often talk about in terms of executive presence, that, you know, the, the best executives have that engagement with the people they lead, whether it's directly or whether it's, you know, because they're, you know, you know at the top of the organization broadcasting out, but people feel connected 
to them, whether they have a a one-on-one conversation or not, they feel that sense of engagement and connection. And what have you seen in terms of people who seem to be able to do that better or um, have more skill in connecting with people? Because at a higher level, it is very difficult to connect with people. It's a lot easier when you're peers to connect with Mm -hmm. someone versus when you're a boss or you're three or four levels uh, above people. Well, what I've seen, especially then during the last two years of COVID, is that people who early in their lives or careers have gone through some challenges and they were open about it. So let's say someone went through a divorce, someone went through uh, losing a job or losing a family member or beating cancer or something like that, where they really went through extremely difficult time and they later on shared about it. Uh, it was known to their friends, the family, the colleagues, everyone knew, well, this person went through this and went walked through it. These people, I call them the thrivers. They've been thriving through the pandemic because if you've gone through something so difficult mm-hmm. and challenging in your life before, this pandemic is nothing. And, <laughs> <laughs> you know, uh, so because these people also have a tendency of being open, being vulnerable and talking about it. So therefore, this pandemic has not been an issue for them. Uh, and that's including myself, Joe, because I had my own uh, challenges in 2015 to 18. Uh, and when I uh, had a crash mentally and I've been in recovery since then, working on myself, so for me, I have been striving through these last two years and I've been focusing my energy every day to try, try to help others who have gone through a challenging time and helping them to be more vulnerable also. That's amazing. That's amazing. That, that resonates um, so much. And, and uh, you know, that, that perspective, right, of, of not that having being the thing that makes you weaker or lesser, but actually can can make you stronger and help you thrive in the future when other things may come. I think that's just a, a an amazing, beautiful way to look uh, at, at life in the world. Yeah, absolutely. I, I call it vulnerability for strength, you know. So it's it really turning that vulnerability into your strongest asset. And, and I think that's the future leaders. I think that's what we need. With You know, we're talking about gig economies and work contracts and people will be more worried, more anxious, and they would need to be more open uh, conversations in that sense. So, so let me ask you, and, and this has been so fascinating. Let me ask you as a, as a thought experiment, Nick, what would the world look like in your mind if everyone read your book or a book like it, right? And, you know, these executives who, you know, we depend on to do very important things, right? For, for our lives, for our communities, for our, you know, society, if, if they really embrace this and, and we're more vulnerable and connecting and mentally we're, we're operating at a higher, better, healthier level. And what would the, what would the world look like? Like, how could this shift things if, if more people got this message? And I hope they do um, and really embrace this. And we had a healthier kind of C-suite, for lack of a better description. It would be, I mean, if you're looking at companies, the work culture would be completely transformed. People would feel more grounded, more part of it. Uh, and we all know the big waves of uh, also driven from the US of the big culture that it's the we, we projects and we do things together, the culture, uh, sending people to uh, spending millions of dollars for festivals and concerts, trying to create 
an inflated culture which can break overnight, which is fake. Uh, that is where we have, what we have tried to do. Indeed, why not try to make it grassroots by changing the culture, by opening the doors and, you know, letting the guard down and, and down and being people and, and showing that we're all humans and we're doing it together. And that doesn't cost anything. And you will have a wonderful environment. And, you know, it, 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 to me, Joe, it's a no-brainer. <laughs> You know, I, I I love that you said it doesn't cost anything. I was thinking those exact words as you were describing, you know, the opposite, which is spending all this money on, you know, foosball and concerts and tickets and stuff like that. Um, I will say in a sense, there is one, and I use, you know, air quotes, cost, I think. And, and to me, because I've witnessed this, is I've seen executives do the right thing. And it almost felt like someone in HR told them to do it, or, or they read a Harvard Business Review article that said, you should walk around and meet every new person and have a conversation with them, right? And then so, you know, at first you're kind of impressed. You're like, wow, this executive is talking to me. And then you never hear from them again. And after a while you wise up and you're like, you know what? They really don't care. They were just trying to do a thing. Mm. So to me, part of the the, the cost is like a, like a real sincerity, like a real... Um, honest embrace of all these things that you're talking about. It's not something you can convince people to do. They have to own it and, and want to do it themselves for this transformation um, to happen. Yeah, and they have to do it in their own way. What is it that they like, you know? And 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 I can clearly see what you said there with uh, being forced the structure to see one on one. May ask the executive what would they like to do uh, if your organization had 30 new employees per week per per month. Well, maybe there can be a Zoom meeting with all of them together. Maybe they go for a walk together or it's a lunch or it's a, it's a breakfast. Or if the person uh, loves to play golf, then take them to the golf course and show them uh, a, a driving lane, uh, be human, go around and show them how to do it and test together or uh, canoeing or whatever the person is doing. Make it around them. So for me, myself, Joe, I'm a cyclist. So if I meet someone new, I'd love to invite them to my cycle group. We go for that. Or I love to go for a walk. And I know uh, that is a beautiful thing. You can go in a small group for a morning walk, you know, and, and people can come to the executive's favorite area and they take them on the favorite walk, you know, and that's more human. That's more uh, connecting. And the executive will probably remember them because it's their environment and it's on their terms. So, yeah, I guess my term I'm coming to here is humanize it. Don't make mm. it so structured. Make it more natural. Yeah, yeah. Humanize it. I love that. And and an additional thing that, that your excellent example is pointing out that it's not it's not the tactic, it's the principle, right? Because what you're talking about is connecting in an authentic way, in a way that's meaningful to the executive. That's the principle. It doesn't matter how you do it. Maybe you don't like cycling. Maybe you like mountain climbing. Maybe you don't like being outside at all. You like being inside, you know, ordering delicious dessert, what, whatever makes you happy, right? I mean, it's, it's, it's the principle of, of finding a way to connect with people in a genuine way. If you can do that, I feel like you've already gone way further than a lot of executives may do in terms of connecting with, with, with the rank and file. Absolutely. And, and you touched upon it then. I mean, if you are, and I, I, I've seen your previous episode, if you are, uh, appreciate wines as a leader, then why not have a wine tasting together with your new team or uh, go for a cooking class if you love to cook and you go, go together, you know, you do something meaningful together. 
and then probably people will remember each other and they put a face to uh, to their leader. So yeah, my, that is my definitely a recommendation. Yeah. Absolutely. Now, as, as we start to, to wrap up, and, and I'm going to ask in a minute how people can learn more about you and, and, and the really great work that you're doing in your book, um, I want to wrap up with, with one question that very directly ties this back to executive presence. So um, I'm going to share with you uh, my definition of executive presence, and I would love for you just to comment on any piece of it that you see that stands out to you or something to comment, an insight that you may have related to your work or, or just other things that you've learned from leadership. So the definition that I use is executive presence is the ability to inspire confidence that you can lead well in a given situation. So perhaps share a little bit about um, how that lands for you, Nick. To inspire. Well, can you repeat it one more sure, time? George? Absolutely. Executive mm-hmm. presence is the ability to inspire mm-hmm. confidence that you can lead well in a given situation. Yeah, I like the word you say inspire there because inspire links back to me to vulnerability. You need to have a connection to be inspired. You cannot be inspired by someone pushing you or forcing you to do something. It has to come from within. So if you can be an inspirational leader, then to me, the way to get there is indeed through being vulnerable. And then the confidence to lead it, indeed, that means that uh, also linked back to being vulnerable, uh, to have the confidence that a leader can do something. It's not the leader themselves. It's the leader and their team, and they do it together. So I, I think it completely resonates with me, Joe. It's a lot in those words there. So, Nick, it's been such a pleasure learning uh, your perspective, your insights about the important work you're doing for people in the audience who may want to learn more, perhaps for someone uh, in their organization, for someone in their family, or even for themselves. How can they learn more about your book, about the work you do, and different resources that they may want to avail themselves to? Well, if you go and put in the term executive loneliness in Amazon, you will find my book. Uh, it actually was released on Audible this week as well. So many executives who perhaps prefer an audio book when you're exercising or so on, is available now on Amazon as an audio book. So that's one way to look me up. And otherwise, Joe, uh, anyone who want to follow me can uh, look up Nick Johnson uh, on LinkedIn and, and uh, follow me there as well. And I will post a lot of the job I do on the ground here uh, uh, in Asia in regards to mental well-being. So uh, it's been absolutely fabulous speaking with you, Joe, and I want you to also keep up the great work and reaching out and connecting executives. Well, Nick, Godspeed. Um, love the work you're doing. I hope you are so successful that it just transforms every single organization in the world. I, I sincerely, nothing would make me happier than that. So thank you for being our guest on Executive Presence Morsels. Thank you. Thanks for listening. Can't wait to be with you again. Join us next time for another tasty Executive Presence Morsel.